This is the Mentors for Military podcast. I really appreciate you joining the show because, I mean, what we do here at Mentors for Military is really about trying to tell a story or share information that can impart to somebody else about, you know, something that each of us did uh, while either on active duty or what we've been able to accomplish since then. You know, as you know, as a uh, fellow soldier and everything, mentoring is just one of those things we do as a leader. Yeah, I think it comes naturally for the guys from the from the military. Anyway, the uh, I, I tell this to guys when they're, when they're leaving. I think a lot of guys in the military, um, yourself, Paul, who's going to be leaving. Uh, sorry, Eric, who's going to be leaving soon. You obviously you're in that that period now where you're uh, you're unsure. But a lot of guys in the military underestimate the skills and capabilities they have already. Um, and I always think. Um, yeah, we, the guys do underestimate themselves. You've got such wide range of skill sets and such confidence as well in the military, being able to stand up in front of of how many? You know, I mean, I I, I had two two of my um, my roles within the military. I was an instructor on the All Arms Commando course, and then I was a senior dive instructor for the Army before I went to the Special Forces. Um, and just being in them roles themselves, you're, you're so confident being able to present. You know, I mean. The, the military has set set procedures, um, and when when you come out into the civilian environment, I think you're already in such a good position. Um, but a lot of guys and girls in the military underestimate the skill sets that they have already. But they they are great mentors, and as we're seeing now, a lot of the ex-military make great great teachers, great school teachers, and they're trying to push that quite um, quite hard here in the UK. Oh, that's good. I didn't realize that. I know that we have a program at, over here, actually, where they try to, to help active duty military make that transition into the teaching program. So that's good to hear that they're doing that there. Yeah, yeah. because the young children automatically, they've, they've gained, gained the respect of the teacher already. You know, they've, they've, these guys and girls have done active duties. Um, and no doubt, they're not all, they've not all come from uh, the best of homes. A lot of them may have come from broken homes themselves. So if you're in a a, a school where... There's students there who are also in that in that position. Then they they obviously witness someone who's who's had the resilience and and come through at the other end. I just stood up a uh, nonprofit with uh, a few of my fellow Green Berets, and we're doing a a thing especially for uh, getting Green Berets transition because we've got guys across the team rooms in the nation and across the globe because we've got guys over in Germany and in uh, Japan and. They're like not knowing what they're going to do. So almost all of them are like, well, I guess I'm going to go do contracting. And uh, and just like you said, like, you know, all of us, uh, most of us across like the soft in general have the ability to be instructors and mentors like inherently just based on our attitudes. So, Dean, maybe it'll be helpful for people across the, this side of the pond who may not be as familiar with you and some of the things that you've accomplished to start off sharing a little bit about your story. And I think you already mentioned early on that, you know, uh, some of the same people in the circles and stuff that uh, Scott Johnson does. But but maybe share a little bit about your backstory and, and uh, how was it that you became a British Special Forces soldier? As we, as we called over here, a pads brat. So I was... Um, my father was in the military, both my grandparents were in the military, so I was very much brought up in, in that environment. Um, I had no no peer pressures at all to join the military myself, and that wasn't the route I was planning on going originally. I always wanted to be a fireman uh, as a young child, but uh, when I left school at 16, there was something like 2,000 applicants for the one job, so it just, just didn't work for me at the time. So uh, I went to college, uh, started my college um, 
uh, courses, but then decided again I wasn't really keen on that. So I, uh, I actually went off surfing for six months and was a silver service waiter in uh, Nuki, just uh, basically serving breakfast and evening meal and just surfing all day. I did my, and that was my original love for the water anyway. I'd been surfing since a young boy. And long before the mobile phones, my father then came and hunted me down and highlighted that I'd ruined my uh, educational career in, in with college and uh, yeah, asked me what I was going to plan on doing. And I, I wasn't the, the man that I looked like at the moment. I was nine and a half stone, uh, 17 years old, you know, nine and a half stone soaking wet through. So I told him I would join the, uh, the military and he said, you would last two minutes. And that's actually stuck in my head. And when you hear my story, you'll see you'll see why. If, um, I'm very passionate when people tell you you can't do something, I will always go to prove them wrong. Um, so I uh, yeah, I joined, I joined the army. My father was Royal Engineers anyway. So um, I went into the careers office, and I used to live in Aldershot, which actually at the time was the home of the British Army. So you have big airborne units there: one para, two para, three para, etc. So about one para with Dover, two and three. And um, I came out of the careers office um, looking at joining the, uh, the parachute regiment. And uh, my father marched me straight back in and said, no, you're not. You'll get a trade. Uh, I think at the time, I didn't think he realized that I was going to have, have a career in the military. I think he was obviously thinking what I can get back from the military in a short period of time. So sure. he was thinking forces everything else. So, so, yeah, I joined the Royal Engineers and they made me aware of 9 Para, 5 9 Commando as well. I wasn't aware that you could do all these um, additional courses. Uh, it then came to a stage where I had to go back to the careers office and, and do your uh, touchscreen test to then decide which which trade you're going to be. And I was like, OK, so um, I went in there and I, I passed all the tests. So I had I had the full choice. And um, this was obviously this was back in 1995. So long before the. Um, the uh, Optelic and everyone else. So I was actually thinking probably more of my penis at the time, how it would attract the ladies. And I thought, well, bomb disposal sounds great. Um, but um, again, my father was like, no, 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 you're going straight back in. And uh, yeah, I, I became a, um, a plant operator mechanic, which is like an A trade. So um, I actually, my first tour, I went over to Germany. My father was the army football manager and coach for the British Army. So his military career was really based on his his sports where about in uh, germany was it dean it was in hamel um okay. uh, you would have heard the pipe piper of hamlin it's yeah the yeah. town of hamel yeah there so but they were the army champions at the time for football so i'd gone over there to to again to probably follow my father's footsteps and, and play football but after a year it, it wasn't the career i i wanted i didn't want to see myself the next 22 years playing sport it was a great opportunity and all you were doing was um, was playing football or, or rugby. Um, so I decided to go do the uh, the five nine commando course, um, and I was successful on that. And I spent my next um, eight years at, at five nine commando. I was very fortunate. I went to the reconnaissance troop. Um, I also then got uh, posted out to Limston, where home of the Royal Marines, which is the uh, all arms commando course training team. Uh, spent a year down there, and then went back to a uh, recce troop and could I spend so long at that one unit I was told you, you now have to leave at the time also a diving supervisor for the military and then I got posted down to Horsey Island which is a joint navy and army defense diving school and I was the senior diving instructor there and then after six months I, I decided right you know 
I'll um, I'll try for selection. Um, yeah, I was successful. But again, going against the grain, I didn't go to your normal conventional route of the army, going to the uh, special air service. Um, it was the option was there to join the special boat service, and having already been commando trained, para trained, and a, a diving instructor, the SBS was was more suited for me at that that time. So. Yeah, and then I ended up joining the uh, special boat service. Now, were you in at the exact same time as uh, Ollie and uh, Foxy and those guys, or was it a different time frame? The same time as uh, as Foxy and Ant. Uh, Ollie wasn't there at time. I don't know Ollie, um, but I know Foxy and Ant really well because, um, in fact, originally I was to be the chief instructor on Who Dares Wins. Um, I got the uh, Minnow Films who filmed who dares wins flew up to scotland uh guy Andrew slater and asked me would i be interested in this uh documentary um i i got ants and foxy on board um i got in touch with the mod regarding this and i was asked to step away uh at this point i was now a civilian i was in the private security sector i had some high net worth clients and some and so i was more conscious how that would come across uh, if I was on TV. So I took the advice of the MOD and I stepped away from that. And then obviously Ant and Foxy then uh, carried on and they did the, did the show. So oh, yeah, they've uh, yeah. definitely blown up over there, huh? Guys, I mean, that show is huge. Yeah, it is. But um, in the, now I'm starting to come up with it, the stuff that I'm doing at the moment and getting exposed to the world of media. I understand there's a, there's a real fine line between authenticity and entertainment. Yeah. You know, what I mean, yeah. when I, people always ask me all the time, how 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 realistic is that show? And I'd probably say about twenty percent. You know, what I mean, but if you were to do it as it as it was by the book or as it is, it'd be quite boring. But you know, I, I really understand how how this industry works now, especially now chatting to my media agencies about the books and everything else. They like, yeah, there's a they like a bit more entertainment as such. So yeah. That tends to be most television, isn't it? I mean, uh, they they tend to get it to where they they believe that the market will want it to go, and next thing you know, you've lost total control over it. Because I think when it originally started out, the idea was to bring it as close as it could. And one of the things that we liked on this side of it, of hearing about it, was that the contestants didn't win millions of dollars or something of that nature at the conclusion of it, which is tends to be what reality TV is over here in the U.S. Right. So that was a that was a positive side that we saw of it, but like you said, over time, all good shows, the reality starts going away and it ends up becoming more of television, good television. That's it. Yeah. I think from I I I haven't actually watched it myself, but from what I've what I've heard, I think the students from series one were there to, you know, try and be physically, mentally strong to to pass the test. And I think obviously as the series has evolved, the the students that they've got all have their own backstories, which then then becomes apparent during the show, which has sort of taken that element away what the show is about. Yeah. But yeah, I um sort of going back, I, I did sixteen years and then unfortunately I had a um a parachuting accident, um a training accident. I got my leg actually caught in the rigging line when I was exiting the aircraft and I ripped my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus, my hamstring and my calf. So the first thing I had to do was um, navigate in the sky for the next 30 minutes, uh, try and stay conscious and get to the uh, to the DZ. Um, my, obviously, my main concern was was the landing. How was I going to land this? But it was, it was a successful landing. managed to land on one, uh, one leg. But um, unfortunately, that was the end of my 
military career then after 16 years, so it was cut short, um, so a bit premature. Um, and then I found myself, yeah, in in the uh, the civilian environment. And this is this is an area I really am focusing on now, in trying to help others with their transition because. As you guys know, and now as Eric knows, ever since you you were 16, 17, all you've ever known is the military. They've been your mother, your father. They've clothed you. They've fed you. Um, you don't need to about worrying if you're not going to get paid at the end of the month. You know, I mean, you probably don't even know which council tax band you're on when you're on camp. But soon, sooner or later, you're then in this this whole new this whole new world um, where you need to. You know, I mean, yes, we've got some great skill sets from from the military, and we're very confident, but what we what the civilian environment take for granted they know who they need to speak to about you know their the heating and things like that we we really struggle um i was very fortunate because my wife's very entrepreneurial and she made that transition quite smooth but i under, i understand that it's not the same for others um so that's an area i really focus on is, is people's transition because I, I i think at the moment with the with the especially with the mental health um, the military focuses on the wounded injured soldiers, or the guys at Invictus Games, guys and girls who have those life-changing injuries, and then there's those that are diagnosed with PTSD, but there's a group in between, which is the, pretty much 95% of the military, which are forgotten about. And I think these are the ones where you're seeing with these suicides. These are the ones that the army are neglecting. And it's just just trying to, um, from my own, my own, try to tell my own stories is, You've, you've gone from it's almost a, it's like a tribe you're in a tribe here you've now left you can't get back into that tribe but there's another tribe over here and you're really trying to find where you fit within that tribe it's almost like an identity crisis you've gone from the top of your game you had a role you knew what you were doing uh, day in day out and now you need to um you know transition you need to now support your family you know i mean there's there's a lot more pressures um so that's a real a real tough area um I was very fortunate within 48 hours, I was asked to set up the um, DFID project, which is part of the British Embassy in Benghazi during the revolution. And, um, and what, I, um, what I soon identified is that in Libya, it wasn't going to be your next Afghan or Iraq. They, they didn't want security teams walking around with weapons. You know, they wanted it to be totally different. So I, um, but I did identify as well, there's a lot of, um big big corporates there big oil and gas companies there's a lot of money and there's a lot of um westerners there but i soon identified that these big big security companies that claim to have crisis management and evacuation plans in place they didn't so i um i bought 30 weapons on the black market i spent a month in libya and i buried them between tunis and egypt and i just decided to write my own evacuation plans and um sort of just just forgot about it sort of left it but these uh he soon came into uh into play uh, a few years later i was uh over in brazil uh working with visa for the brazil world cup and um i got the phone call that the canadian embassy in libya was stranded so i came back into country and single-handedly i evacuated 18 military and four diplomats from tripoli all the way back to tunis oh my um, gosh yeah, that's pretty impressive, man. The, an EPA <laughs> is not easy to write, let alone actually activate and conduct. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, but I'd, I think I'd foreseen this. I, I, I had to find a niche in the industry when I left. You know, a lot of my friends were doing the um, the, the piracy, and I didn't want to tread on their feet. So I, I needed to find a, an area or a niche, and uh, yeah, that was that was my niche. 
But I came back from that trip and, um, yeah, me and my wife sat down. I'd only been home 21 days that whole year, um, literally, because I was setting, building up the businesses. And it soon came to soon came to light. I hadn't really addressed leaving the military. I was trying to match that adrenaline rush I had when I was in the Special Forces without the fact knowing I had no top cover. I had no, my, I didn't have my friends around me. I didn't have the helos. I didn't have the uh, UAVs and, and everything else. So something something had to change. And, um, and my wife's a property developer, so she asked if I would do property developing with her. And I thought, yeah, fine, Let, let's do that. But as you can imagine, probably about a month after architects and planners meetings, I wasn't actually that interested in the heating system of the building. You know, I, mean, I was more interested in the coffee and the biscuits. Right. That's you bring up a really valid point, and that's one of the things that I think some of our service members lack at times, or or they put off way too far and way too long, is the fact that you do have to transition, like that your uniform is no longer who you are. That you know who you are is the man or woman without the uniform, and you have to basically rediscover your why. Yeah, yeah, and and. And I was very much guilty of this uh, myself. I was blaming uh, when I first got out. I was at civvies this, civvies that. You know, civvies they, they don't they don't think like me. They ne- they never they're never there on time. And it, it's only just recently on my last challenge that uh, we had a documentary team with us, and a couple of the guys, my mates, were with me military, and and they they used that phrase a lot. Oh, these civvies. And I said I said no, it's not. It's not the civilian world. It's actually us that are different, and we need to adapt to that. And I think a lot of guys and girls in the military are quick to blame the civilian community when, in fact, it's not them. It's us that are unique and different, and we almost need to uh, need to uh, yeah engage that really. Um, it's about assimilation, and the faster that you can assimilate back, the more you're greeted or engaged by the people that you're coming into. And of course you can get employment and everything else much easier. And I think like you were talking about earlier, Dean and people coming back, not realizing that they have to assimilate, not realizing that um, they have to play a role in this whole thing. And they've got to uh, also show their value now to the marketplace and to the, the private sector. It's, it's very important that they do that. No, very true. But again, another a great, um, thing with the military guys and girls is that they you know they can start another a career another role it doesn't have to do the private security you know I, i'm hearing some great stories of my friends who just ex-special forces just leaving that behind them and just starting new careers from fresh be it you know accountancy be it you know smoked food or, or whatever you know, and, and they are good at and, and military girls and guys are, are good at that they they used to change and, and they pick up things quite quite quick so again going back to us saying that a lot of them do underestimate their their capabilities and skill sets, and and they shouldn't do. They should should be confident. It's like you get your logic twisted up. You think it would be easy to um, assess the situation when you're getting out, but you know, like you're saying, if we're pointing the finger at the civilians and saying, "Hey, they're the problem," well, then you're identifying the entire world as a problem. So where are you going to put your efforts? So just from a perspective of an economy of efforts, which is something that you know you should understand with a military background, I believe. Uh, what are you going to change the rest of the world or, or just yourself? And are you going to try to adapt or are you going to try and adapt the rest of the world to you? Cause you know, one of those courses of actions just isn't realistic in any way. Yeah, very true. So when was it that you decided to start doing the biking? I mean, were you always a biker or was this something that you just decided to pick up as a, as a hobby and then it turned into something much more? 
Yeah, so that period, that month that I, I talked about when I, I just decided to uh, step away from the private security sector and was doing the property development with my wife, I'd, um, I'd say I hadn't really focused much on my own personal fitness because I'd spent most of my efforts on on building my businesses and everything else and I actually neglected myself. So um, I can't run anymore. I know, I know that. Uh, so I bought a, a push bike to cycle from my house into the city and home. So it works, it works out about 18 miles there and back. But automatically, I felt a lot better. And um, so when my wife and I, after mum, she realized I wasn't going to be in the property development business that long. Um, she said, well, look, you know, we're in a great position. Um, what is it you'd like to do? And I said, well, we do a lot with charity anyway. I'm the SBS Association ambassador here in Scotland and we do other stuff with other, other charities. So I said, well, I've always fancied doing a world record. And for me, it's like, if I'm gonna do something, we talk about the unrelenting pursuit of excellence, which is one of the ethoses of the special forces. If you're gonna do it, you do it to the best of your ability. So jumping on the bike and cycling 20 miles, just joining the local cycling club wasn't enough for me. Um, so we decided to find the, the longest road in the world, which is 14,000 miles from Southern Argentina to Northern Alaska. And still having only cycled 18 miles, I applied for the world record. And um, six weeks later, yeah, Guinness came back and they, they confirmed that, um, yeah, your, your, your challenge, your, your up for it, we'll, um, we'll accept it. So wait, wait, I've, I've got to stop you, Dean, because I, I just that just kind of blew my mind. So you're just sitting there and you decided that you're going to pick the longest route that's out there and and then go after it, which most people probably wouldn't do something like that. But I mean, you wanted to be the best and the longest at that that's point. It, yeah, it's that unrelenting of excellence, but also you need an objective as well. And that's why I, sure. I sort of worked out is um, so when I... Yeah, I, actually, my wife found that road. I was thinking something like more Land's End, John O'Groats, something a bit more uh, manageable, but she did find yeah. the longest road in the world. So I thought, well, that's perfect. That's the that's the challenge I, I want to do because having then done my more more research, it covers all the four seasons. You know, you've got Alaska, it was minus 18. The Atacama Desert in Chile was 47 degrees. You've got you've got everything in between as well. So it, it, was, it was the perfect project for me and it, to keep myself physically and mentally engaged. Um, a bit of name dropping now. Myself and Prince Harry are very good friends, known each other 11 years. So I mentioned to him about this challenge and this was back in 2016. And he said, would I do it for um, a mental health campaign called Heads Together, which was very, at the time was very much his infancy stages. Um, I knew I was aware of mental health within this civilian um, group, but I wasn't aware how big an issue this was in the whole of the civilian sector as well from young children teenagers all the way up so it was the perfect challenge and I, I set a target of a million pounds I thought well if the if the the extent of the journey is going to be that big then we're going to we're going to aim high as well with the target so that was the sure. first Pan America Highway Challenge 2018 and what I did from then on I, I literally approached it as a military operation I actually got went through a military set of orders I literally you know you cover off every medical logistics ERVs um, you know, I, the only thing I didn't take off was ammunition on this one. I crossed that one off, but, uh, <laughs> and, and, that's, and that kept myself really busy. And I, that's how I approached this. I just took as a military operation. I went the the intricacy of the of the planning. Um, you know, talk about the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. That was involved in the training. That was involved in the, in the planning and everything else. And I trained fully uh, full time for a year. Very fortunate to be in that position that my wife 
was was running the businesses, you know, I mean, and, and everything else. If, if you take away all those, I, when I guest speak now, I, I, I tell people that anyone can break a world record if you can afford to take two years off your life and train fully for it and not worry about your mortgage, the businesses and everything else and have that backing of your, your family. So I was fortunate to be in that position and took advantage of that. And so, yeah, I, I set off um, on the 1st of February this year. I'd done all I could in, in training-wise. Um, I'd been out to Dubai to do the heat training. I'd done altitude training. I'd been out to Thailand to do the humidity training. So I sort of looked at everything, all the issues I, was, I potentially have along the way, uh, and also did a lot of research, um, met guys that previously had the world records, all the lessons learned from them. As, as you, in the military, you, you le- lessons learned when you come back off, off operations or, or tours. You, you know, what worked, what didn't work, if you were to do it again, what would you change? And, that, and that's literally the same the same procedures that I did with this challenge. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great, the world record was 117 days. I was always aiming for 110 days. I was going to take the week off. And the, the reason I was aiming for a week was that for any sort of eventualities that were out of my control, natural disasters, um, elections, everything else, that we still have fudge in the system. Um, the world record for South America was 58 days. I did it in 48 days. I took 10 days off that world record. And when I got into Texas on day 70, I thought, great, I'm now two weeks ahead of the world record. I can take a couple of days rest if need be. And then my wife rang me and told me we've been kindly invited to this royal wedding, which I wasn't really aware of. I knew it was happening, but I had been following the social media or the TV. So in that split second, I'd lost my two days rest. Um, I had to forget about the world record um, because the latest flight home was day 102. Um, I was fortunate in North America and Canada that I could cycle through the evening. Uh, South America and Central America, security-wise, wasn't a wise move. So that's where I gained a lot of my time. Um, I was playing chess with Mother Nature with regards to the winds, cycling through the nights when the winds had subsided. And I was about a week outside and I thought, right, yeah, I'm going to be back in time by day 102 for this wedding. And then uh, one of my friends messaged me and told me about this professional cyclist, because um, I still very much still, even now, see myself as a, as a novice. Um, and he wanted to break the world. He wanted to break the world record and be the first person to do it under 100 days. So I'd cycled 22 hours out the last 30 hours to then come in 99 days, 12 hours and 56 minutes, taking 17 days off off that record so we achieved achieved the aim yeah but the world record the only reason the reason i played for the world record is because then that gave me something to aim for i I had an objective with my training if if just to say we're going to raise a million pounds you'll cycle the pan-american highway i'd probably still be halfway up peru by now you know i mean i I had to set myself a a target and and that's why we did that oh yeah (laughs) what was the um what was the 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 longest sitting you did, how many miles did you cover? I think I read somewhere I was, I was following it as you was doing it along uh, on social media, obviously. Yeah. And I, I think I read somewhere that you, 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 it was when you was in America and you were cycling through the night because of the winds and you did a mammoth sitting and something like 300 odd miles in. Yeah, well, there's actually, there's an app called uh, Windy TV. So I, I thought all my issues were going to be in South America. We had the strong winds. So the first week in Patagonia, I had 40 knot cross winds, and there was just nothing you could do. You, you had your, your hottest deserts in, in the Atacama was 47. Your, your biggest climbs 
were all, and that's why I, I, I did all my research. The, the previous um, record holders had all gone from north to south. All their issues seemed to be in South America, nothing in North America or Canada. You know, you're not going to expect any issues there. So I thought, well, why take a gamble with a second half? Well, let's get all the issues out of the way first. Um, so like your climbing wise, I think the biggest climb on Tour de France is 21 kilometers. My biggest climb was 67 kilometers and it's from sea level to 4,000 meters in a day. So yeah, you just take whatever you can relate to on like Tour de France and just yeah, put it on steroids. It's just on a, a grander scale completely. How did you deal with like the uh, possibilities of like hape and haste and all that stuff happening, especially with that quick of a climb? Because I mean, that's almost like the equivalent of almost getting the bends, if you will, for scuba. Yeah, well, I, I knew my body. I knew my body was um, obviously being a diver and and doing and and parachuting. So I knew my body w was okay. The changes in the pressures, but there was a. Uh, when I was down in London, I live in Scotland, so I was having to go down London quite a lot to have meetings, talk to potential sponsors, uh, etc. And there's a place down there called the Altitude Centre. So the room is simulated at 2,700 metres. So I would go in there and train. And my biggest ride I did there, I did a 10-hour non-stop ride on one of their Watt bikes just to see what my body was like at 10 hours solid. So... I did all that prior to going on the challenge, along with going out to Dubai, cycling in 40-plus heat. So I was just I was testing myself be, before we went out. So that's how I managed to – I knew I was all right, but uh, my documentary team and, and drivers I had with me, I, I totally forgot about them, and they were all feeling sick. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd actually focused more on myself and neglected my team. Um, oh. And, uh, yeah, I was all right cycling, <laughs> but they were sick in the vehicle. So. Yeah. Did you guys have to bring like O2 tanks and stuff like that for the uh, no, crew? No, we were, we were good. We were good. But I, when I there, yeah, so they're going back to yours, um, Scott. Is the um, yeah? When I was in Texas, I was in Lubbock, and we got we got. Um, so I did it in ninety nine days. I actually had five days rest, three due to um, the weather and two due to the logistics. And Lubbock in Texas being one of the weather days, it was. 60 mile an hour plus winds with tornadoes so we were just stuck there for um for a day but having a, I had an, an app on my phone called windy tv and it tells you the directions and strengths of the winds and the forecasts each hour for the next week and i basically had to cycle 320 miles in the next 36 hours to get out of that sort of weather front and, and get out so that's what i did i just carried on cycling until i was out of that position but again, it worked in my favor. I got to Cheyenne and um, I picked a huge tailwind and I covered 260 miles in 11 hours and 10,000 feet of climbing. So, and that's what I was doing. I was just playing mother nature, uh, playing chess with mother nature. Um, well, we, you we, had right through Oklahoma, right through the tornado time period then. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, so my, my t the time period, so Dalton's Highway in Alaska, which obviously where they film Ice Truckers, which is the last 400 yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's only normally it's only accessible by push bikes um, between June and August, and so so I'd moved, I sort of gauged back, I worked back from that 117 days. Um, so, but it worked well as well. I I, I picked up. Um, I was in the southern hemisphere during the summers summer heats as well, so that no, was good. Yeah, I lost 12 kilos from start to finish. So, yeah, I wasn't the man I looked like uh, when I started. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So what kind of uh, supplies and everything did you guys have to take then on the caravan? So uh, logistics wise, we we had an RV from Panama um, north, but there's a Darren Gap 
between Colombia and Panama, which you have to fly fly across. Uh, so for South America, I can see now why everyone goes from north to south, because logistically you can get a vehicle from Alaska all the way down to Argentina. Reverse, you can't. You ha- we had to get high vehicles in Argentina, Chile, Peru, um, and they'd take all our fresh foods and, and, and things like that. So um, uh, again, like even the nutrition, it's, it's easy for me to say here back in UK, this is what I'm going to eat. But when you're actually out there on, on the ground, that, that's not... It's not as uh, as easy, you know. Patagonia, Argentina, I ate cheese and ham sandwiches or ham and cheese, whichever way you looked at it. And then when you got into Chile, it was like chicken and rice. Um, I got food poisoning in Peru twice, so oh yeah. So I was, uh, and someone said to me, you know, what I mean, yeah, you can cycle with food poisoning. No, that yeah, you can, but it's not it's not pleasant. But uh, when I got to uh, when I got to Texas, it was great. The culinary options were a lot better, and I was. Yeah, I was, I was taking a tray of donuts at a time. Yeah, I was just wondering about those supplies and everything because of the fact that you guys probably didn't have very many stops, it sounds like, or at least long enough to where you could catch some sleep and shut eye as well as picking up and resupplying. And like you said, if somebody was raiding you at the same time frame, that made it quite difficult. Yeah, but I, I think when from Panama Northwards, we, we had the RV, so that would literally dictate where I would stop. No, I could. I would just keep going until um, I, I, I then sleep in the RV and, and then carry on. Um, for South America, we didn't have that option, especially some of these places. I was actually dictated by the towns or the or the hotels along the way. Okay. So so we would we would have a bit, have a bit of rest. Um, but yeah, like yeah, the the, the food wise. I'm not a big fan. I know. I, mean, I started cycling at 39. I've just I had my 41st birthday in Mexico. You know, I'm not a young cyclist. So I, for me, I would if if Ginster's pasty or Greg's sausage roll sponsor me, I'd take them on. You know, I mean, I just I'm, I eat normal food. I don't eat <laughs> the, these gels and anything. I just just uh, plenty of it for me. Yeah. Um, I was trying to promote with this campaign as well is that physical activity helps your mental state, and that's what I was trying to promote as well as for. Um, for the wider audience, it's, a lot of people feel that they've passed the stage where they can't get into sport. Oh, I'm too late for that now. As I'm, what I'm trying to promote here and with my next two challenges is that I'm going to take three whole new disciplines that I've never done before, take on the biggest challenge in the world and break the world records. So people then realise um, a lot of people are put off or give themselves excuses from the start why they can't do it. So if I can promote why you can, then. No, I think that's a great story. And so along the way, though, you were raising the funds, and or at least at least initially you had set a goal. So where did you come out as far as your goal and compared to, you know, the actual? Yeah, so on my actual giving page, I only raised £30,000. And, and my PR team, um, that's, we've actually raised almost a million now, but my PR team, um said that on my blogs on, on my videos that i was doing i was showing no emotion they're like i think the general public like to see people crying breaking down there's a, a famous lady here like a radio presenter who cycled a zoe ball she cycled 100 miles the other week i mean she cried every mile and raised two hundred fifty thousand pounds uh the guy from radio one couldn't achieve his free peach challenge because uh of the weather so he he started crying on, on national telly and raised a million pounds. So I've missed the trick. Maybe I should have started crying in Peru. 
And you should have had the yeah, you should have had the production crew or something along with you that understood the the whole aspect of that. That's crazy. But also the production crew as well. They were saying, look, he, he's showing no emotion. But I was trying to promote the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. That's what I was trying to promote. You know, sure. I had an objective. I had a mission, and and, and I, that was my mission to the end. And, and nothing was going to stop me. Um, so um, yeah, so obviously. We didn't get as much on that. But when I crossed, before I left, my main sponsor, they raised £265,000 the evening before I left. And that was also matched pound for pound for the mental health charity. So it was 530000 there. We got another sponsor of 200000 when I was along the way. I've just, have another, uh, just had another sponsor two weeks ago give us 100000 We raised 250000 at the Wheels Down Ball when I finished the event. Uh, and we raised seventy thousand here in Aberdeen. So when you take away all your costs, I think we're about forty thousand short. You know, it's around nine hundred sixty thousand. But you know, that's still I, amazing, amazing. Yeah, no. So yeah, so I'm really pleased. It wasn't so much the general public; it was more the corporate. But I know through my my time in 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 the in the, in the, in the civilian sector with the corporates, these guys. You know, if you get to the, get the right people in the room, um, yeah, you, you can make a lot of money. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about what that money is going to be used for, because you talked a little bit about mental health. And in the UK, you guys are focusing a lot on um, not just the military side of this as it relates to post-traumatic stress or traumatic, traumatic brain injury, but you're also looking at all mental health because it's a it's a problem uh, that you're tackling it all at one time frame. Yes, yeah, so so Heads Together is actually a campaign and the charities that were beneath that. So when Harry and I sat down, um, I asked how, we, how we'd, we'd separate the money. So um, there was a, a contact armed forces, which is um, a go-to site. And then within that, you have Help for Heroes, Combat Stress, uh, British Legion, Walking with the, with the Wounded. So they needed a bit of assistance. So 30% of the money was going to them. And then 10, I didn't then want to discriminate the other charities. I wanted everyone to have a piece. So then the other 10% would go to the other, other seven charities. Um, we've just given out the first check for 500,000. I know like Mind, they've, they've told us that the money, that money alone will uh, be able to employ someone for 18 months to man a phone 24 hours. And that's just that one charity with that 50,000. Place to be, which is uh, the young children at school. Um, and this is our sort of, broke it down when I was cycling. I was told that the money that we'd raised to them would enable 14,000 young children to be able to go into these, these step-in clinics at schools and speak to counsellors. So the way I would relate that is that every mile I was cycling, I knew that a child would be able to uh, access that. Uh, and that's just two of the 11 charities. Um, yeah, so yeah, there's a lot, a lot of money. I'm, I'm still getting feedback from them where the money's going to be, be going to, and then I'll be able to oh, put sure. it. It post out soon. Dean, are you able to say anything about your your new challenges coming up? Yeah, why not? Yeah, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I want to I want to take the same sort of model as this. I want to take a whole new discipline um, I've never done before and find the biggest challenge in the world. So, at the end of June next year, I'm gonna start kayaking. I need to get into a kayak soon because it's not long yet to come, and I'm gonna kayak the River Nile. It's never been done before as a world record. So I'm now chatting with Guinness, which which adds again. It's uh, again logistics wise planning. You've got you've got the civil war of South Sudan. You've got Nile crocodiles, hippos. I'm, I'm studying the feeding habits of the Nile crocodile at the moment. Um, <laughs> I don't, 
I don't like ammonia or urine, so I might just uh, piss in a couple of bags and stuff in the canoe. I mean, you sound, sound so easy. Yeah, well, yeah. But, and, 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 and I said, I'm just going to take the same, the same model, the same template, and just drop it into kayaking. Um, my sponsorship marketing team, when we did the last challenge, um, we, we formulated the strategy and the sponsor decks to the sponsors. And uh, the only weakness that came back was my arrogance towards the cycling community. Um, well, I took that as a strength, um, but no one in the cycling community said that. But they said you, you could come across quite arrogant to do this. But so the kayaking community will feel the same in the next few weeks, probably. <laughs> so you didn't break down with the cycling community and and uh, talk about how troubling it was to do this the fourteen thousand miles. When I finished, I had quite a lot of interviews with cycling magazines, and they assumed yeah. they were under the assumption I was a cyclist before. It was only when I told him I'd only cycled 20 miles. It, it was almost like it was quite hard for him to believe. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I got the full support of the local cyclists when they, when they realized. And, I, again, I think that gave them – what I was trying to say to people is you need to set your, uh, need to set your own goals. Everyone needs to be um, mentally engaged but also physically engaged as well. You know what I mean? When I started cycling – my, my right leg was two kilos lighter than my left due to the muscle wastage. I've now got that that strength back. Um, and I always tell people, set yourself your your own goals. And I, you know what I mean? It'd be ludicrous to go cycle two continents, but that was my goal. Uh, and I'll always push it, push it beyond. Um, but I think, yeah, if I was to do another cycling challenge, you know, if I decided to do another challenge, it was cycling, people would be like, well, he's already done that. So I, I like to be the underdog. I like to be the one told you can't do that. You know, I mean, no one's done the Nile as in a record before. So, it's the well, now that you've uh, now that you built up your bottom, you know, your legs and everything, you've got to do the upper body workout now, right? To balance it everything out with the kayak. Yeah, and that was the thing as well. My wife didn't marry me because I looked like Chris Froome as well. I need to put the weight back on. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. There's a piece here, Dean, about mindset, I think, isn't there, as well, you know, and obviously you're a physically fit guy and through your military career, always been, you've always been a fit guy and, and pushed that. But it, it struck me earlier when you said about um, doing a training ride, a 10-hour training ride on a Watt bike. The, the mental fortitude to do that is phenomenal, you know, and... You can understand, I think, why you you got this target in your head of, of fourteen thousand miles, and there was there was just nothing that was going to get in your way and stop you from doing that. And to to sit on a bike for ten hours in in a chamber, and I I hate yeah. you know the, um, the the indoor trainers, and um, I, I last about thirty minutes, and I just want to get off and bang my head against the wall but to do it for 10 hours it's that's 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 a different mindset i guess yeah it is but i i knew, I, I knew if i could do it 10 hours just sat there looking at myself in the mirror luckily i'm quite vain you know what i mean so i was quite pleased for the 10 hours but the, <laughs> that i knew when i was going out on the you know i have to do 10 hours on the bike but i'm going to see different things so my coach here in aberdeen used to always say to me i live uh, just outside aberdeen and the road just down the road is Royal D side. So it goes all the way past Balmoral Castle up to Braemar Ski Centre. Uh, there and back is exactly 100 miles. And I used to do that, two of them a week. And he'd be like, why are you doing the same route? But I knew because I could gauge my fitness um, from the, my previous one uh, and things like that. But I then knew that when I was going to do the challenge, every day was going to be a different day. 
you know what I mean? I was going to see new sights as well. So I knew when I was on that bike for 10 hours in there, I thought, well, if I can do this, this is probably the worst position you're going to be in, the worst scenario. When you're out there, you're going to be taking in, so, you know, there's so many other things, the, the scenery as well. And, um, and things never go to plan. We talk about, and I, I do genuinely think, yes, it was a great endurance feat, but I put it down to the, to the planning, the planning and the logistics. You, you see people now who go on, they, they, you know, and they're going to go cycle around the world and they, they set off in the wrong direction. They're heading towards the wind. Because it, and when you, when you speak, they haven't done their research. And I think that's crucial. Yes, yes, I'm I'm quite fit and a, a great you know endurance feat, but it's the, the planning that's 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 what what nails it. So, and again, like I I I I get involved from the start. I plan the whole operation and I actually do the operation you know all the way through. Some of these other guys that I I've been following is they just get told you're on the bike and go. They leave it up to someone else. I don't think I'd be comfortable with that, but. When people say, well, what's going through your mind? What are you thinking about? Because you're involved in that planning uh, process. You're actually thinking about the next two or three stages of the challenge anyway. So you've got stuff to, to be getting on with. And, and I think that, that, that helps as well. Um, so you talked uh, you talked a lot about planning and research and a lot of what we're talking about here relates right back to both the military and civilian listeners about your unrelentless uh, pursuit of excellence and so I'm curious to know what would be the leaving message what would be the message then that you're trying to state to everybody uh, uh, the average person who might be listening to this podcast about the pursuit of their own excellence and how they might go about finding that um never uh, don't gauge yourself on other people as well. A lot of people, when they're looking for their own excellence, they'll try and compare it with someone on social media. You know what I mean? You, you do it in bite sizes as well. So, like, when I, when I, if I looked at the full 14,000 miles, I would never have even gotten the plane because that itself would consume you. You know what I mean? Um, so you, you need to break it down into, into manageable bite sizes. And a lot of guys and girls in the military can, can relate to this. Um, so what I did is I, I broke that that campaign into countries and I broke that down into days. I mean, each day I then broke into four legs. Um, and what I would do is I cycle two or two and a half hours. I'd get off the bike, eat and drink. And then all I would then focus on, I wouldn't even be focused on if it was the next two, two and a half hours. Um, so if you're going to do something, don't, don't, if you're going to, for example, run a marathon, don't go try and run 26 miles, go run four miles, you know, and do it in bite size. And when, I mean, once, and that boosts your confidence as well. And you know, I mean, I, when I set off on this challenge here back in UK on paper, I was going to cycle 91 to 153 miles a day, depending on the ascents or the descents. Uh, by the time I got to Chile and Peru, I was physically fit, so I was getting mentally fit. So anything less than 150 miles just wasn't enough for me. So it averaged 147 miles a day that I was cycling. Um, so, yeah, so if you're going to do it, break it into manageable bite sizes. And another quote I always used to use when I was at uh, Limston in the dive school is anticipation is worse than participation. A lot of people already think or already beaten and then when they actually done it or actually take part in it they say oh that wasn't actually that bad a lot of people can um, be, be, be beaten before they've even set off so yeah anticipation is worse than participation I think you've left some really good um, things. I mean, when you think about those who are transitioning out of the military uh, or whether you're in the private sector already as a civilian, you're looking at 
um, employment or the next job, the next opportunity, whatever it may be, every bit of the lessons that you've described here that you've applied are applicable to those same things. It's about making sure that you accomplish your goals and bite-sized elements. It's making sure that you've done the right planning and the right research to, to make sure that you're physically, mentally fit uh, for whatever it is that's going to come at you in the future. And uh, the fact that you're still going out there and setting higher goals uh, it's really great and, and it's inspirational, Dean. I, I don't think that there are many people like you, at least that I've met, certainly, that uh, go out there and look for the next greatest challenge in the in the way that you're doing it. So, and I never see myself still as, as the expert. As Albert Einstein said, once you stop learning, you start dying. Every day is a school day. You know, you always, I'm always keen, keen to learn, so, which is why I've enjoyed my time in the cycling community. I'm now going to learn a lot from the, the kayaking community. Um, so, yeah. Well, best of luck to you uh, kayaking the Nile and uh, wish you all the best in the future as well. Thank you very much. All right. This takes us to our most favorite part of the show, Scott. That's those people who are actually our patrons of the the podcast and provide us um, their support. And they do that through our Patreon site. And that's patreon.com backslash mentors, the number four M-I-L. And we recently uh, issued a challenge out there. Actually, you did. Scott and looks like your challenge has been met. Yeah, so last week we uh, we put a challenge out to to get somebody in uh, at the tribe level, and Stephanie Lincoln, uh, she's gone and and chipped in. So Stephanie's come in at the tribe level, um, and Stephanie runs a company called Fire Team Whiskey as well. So awesome whiskey drinking supporter. For mentors for military podcast. No, actually, I think that has something to do with uh, working out and physical side of it. Nothing to do with whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks so much, Stephanie, for all the, the, the contributions. And uh, we'll look forward to trying to coordinate you coming on as a co-host. Uh, that's one of the great benefits to the level that you came in at. at and, uh, of course, uh, we look for someone else to either join Stephanie on this or to, uh, you know, try to come in at the highest donation level. We're always looking at that. So appreciate all the support. Uh, and, again, uh, with the support, we're going out to, to be able to do some of the things that we'd like to do and the goals that we have put out there that we've listed on our team room page that you can find on Facebook and uh, some pretty lofty goals that we hope to try to achieve. So Stephanie's uh, contribution, everybody who makes the contribution allows us to do that type of stuff. 